0: Hello and welcome to the Clearbridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, investment strategist at Clearbridge Investments. Clearbridge is a leading global equity manager with $112.4 billion in assets under management. We are committed to delivering long term results through active management and offer investment solutions that emphasize differentiated bottom up stock selection. Clearbridge tailors our strategies to meet four primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise high active share. Income Solutions, Low Volatility, and ESG. I'm excited to be here today with my colleague, Paul Ehrlichman. Paul is the head of ClearBridge's Global Value Equity Investment Team and co-manages numerous global and international strategies. Paul has 33 years of industry investment experience. Paul, thanks for joining me here today. great to be here. We're here to talk a little bit about the international and U.S. value investing opportunity. So, obviously, we've, we've seen a rotation into value here, while growth has been a leader for a majority of this market cycle. So far throughout 2017, you've seen a switch back to growth, um, and many investors are asking whether or not last year's leadership in cyclicals and value is over. You know, and it's a fair question because growth has been the frontrunner for most of this market cycle, but I believe, at least in the U.S., that 2017 will continue to see value leadership. The recent weakness is most likely a consolidation period after a great post-election rally. So part of this consolidation has to do with investors realizing that tax reform, infrastructure, and deregulation is going to take more time to develop. But the backdrop from a a fundamental perspective for a continuation of this cyclical rally is still intact. Wage growth is at post-recession highs. PMIs in the U.S. continue to expand. And if you look at the new orders component of the survey, it recently hit sixty in December. Just as a reminder, anything over fifty is expansionary, so sixty is a really good indication that there's future demand out there on the manufacturing front. Credit conditions remain supportive with triple B spreads hitting fresh lows last Friday, and confidence numbers across the board are through the roof. Consumer confidence, the NAHB Housing Index, which is a home build home builders index, and the small business NFIB surveys all sit at market cycle highs. And it's a good indicator that animal spirits in the economy are set to be released. But most importantly, from a takeaway perspective, there's a strong correlation between small business capex plans and the performance of bank stocks. If this correlation continues to hold, bank stocks could have some room to run on the upside as we see a continuation of a steepening yield curve and reflation here in the U.S. On top of that, the sectors that stand to benefit the most from an easing of the regulatory burdens are financials and energy. Those two cyclical sectors happen to be the largest constituents of the Russell 1000 value. So financials are still one of the most inexpensive sectors on a forward PE basis, even with the most recent rally that we've seen. So I do think that there's a lot of opportunity there. The administration also sees the energy sector as a way to lower the burden on the middle class. Just today, Trump took some steps to advance construction of the Keystone and Dakota Access pipelines, marking the start of an era with fewer constraints on domestic oil and gas operators. Less red tape, expanded access to federal lands and waters, streamlining the approval process for exporting liquid natural gas, and technological advances should help lower the overall shale break-evens and make the energy sector an area for potential outperformance. So I don't think whether or not we see delays on Trump's agenda, I don't think that really necessarily matters. I still think that the cyclical sectors of the value complex appear to be a good investment opportunity. So, so Paul, we, we've talked a little bit about how Trump's election in the U.S. has helped the rotation into value recently, and the international space has experienced a similar move from growth into value. Do you attribute the rotation to Trump alone, or are there other factors at work here?
1: Well, I always think about events in the context of of what Matt Ridley structure, his framework that things tend to evolve, meaning the times make the man, not the other way around. And in this context, you you highlighted one divide, cyclicals versus, let's say, defensives and value versus growth or another big divide. But there's a lot of financial divides, not just uh, political divides. And so as we entered the middle of 2016, many of these divides reached historic levels. And we call this the period of great distortion. So you saw from the global financial crisis on, markets were trying to renorm. We were trying to move from unsustainable drivers of growth to sustainable drivers of growth. And of course, policies, some were helpful, some were not helpful. The distortion being the price of money, sometimes called financial repression, quantitative easing, um, the distortion of the bond market, set up these massive gaps between value and growth, um, cyclicals versus non-cyclicals, low vol versus high vol. Um, We characterized it simply as stock beta was cheap, bond beta was expensive. Probably we'll look back and see uh, the $13 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt is one of the greatest manias in history. Um, So all of these things, this confluence of events, and of course, the very real difference between those that benefited from inflating assets because all these policies we're talking about, they inflated asset prices and the real economy didn't benefit. So we had a the strange confluence of events where you had asset bubbles, particularly mm-hmm. bonds, but you didn't have an inflated economy. So we have new economic bubble. We've had a sluggish economy, particularly outside of the U.S. And all of these events cause a rise in populism because the people – that, that don't benefit from um, inflated bond prices, which is almost everyone except for bond managers. Uh, most people are harmed by financial repression. All those people kind of said, listen, you connected elites, you're not hearing us, uh, and we're going to kick you out. And so the leaders of Britain were kicked out, Italy, probably Germany, and, of course, along comes the, the – the, populist candidate. I don't, he's not really a Republican. He's more of a populist. Um, And he tapped into this um, upset that had been building for a number of years. And um, so we basically see the Trump nomination actually is when this began, the middle of value turned in the middle of 2016. Um, and it was also uh, not just Donald Trump, but the turn in policies. So we saw – now, the central bankers didn't admit that QE failed because they're academics. And you know, when, the, when the reality doesn't conform to their theory, their theory survives and is right, not the reality. So they said, well, QE could only do so much. Now we actually need fiscal policy. And by the way, we're willing to monetize that. So if you remember back into the middle of the year, we had the Japanese talk about targeting the long bond. In other words, if we're going to taper, but we're going to target the yield curve, we're going to try and steepen the yield curve potentially in some places. Um, but we're going to make sure that interest rates stay low and, and we're going to buy every newly issued bond to monetize the fiscal spending. And there was this massive policy shift at the same time. So there was this confluence of a lot of events, a lot of forces putting new leaderships in place, generally under the moniker of populism uh, and but a complete shift in and um, the desire to you think about the, the world really the central banks and policymakers were, were supporting the bond market and bond prices. And that wasn't very helpful for the average person and for the real economy. And then the shift was, okay. we have actually have to reconnect Wall Street with Main Street. We have to get the real economy going. And that was a powerful shift. Uh, And smart people, or maybe if you don't think it's smart, clever or opportunistic people, have jumped on that and won a lot of elections all around the world.
0: So this rise in populism obviously has changed an investor mindset. We've seen Brexit. We've also seen it here in the U.S., Right. Who's the next domino to fall, of course. But are there any other signals that do give you confidence that we're heading into a multi-year style reversal of <laughs> value overgrowth?
1: Well, well, some of it is mean reverting. And so we have to look at how far we got away from the mean. In other words, was this a minor underper- period of underperformance in value investing? And it was actually one of the largest periods of underperformance that we've ever seen. Um, in June, um, once again, when, when value bottomed in June of last year, uh, for 10 years, the EFA value index went basically nowhere. The annualized return was about 0.4%. I mean, that's horrible on wow. an absolute basis. It was terrible. And it was one of the strongest on a rolling 10-year basis, periods of underperformance, similar to the tech bubble. Um, and if you look on, in Europe only, it was a 30-year low. You have to go back into the 70s. This is like French nationalizations and terrorist attacks in, in, within Europe. It was a horrible time for Europe. So when you talk about 10 to 30-year lows, um, when they begin to mean revert, this is not going to end after six months. So we do think from a time standpoint where we're coming from and how far away we are from a valuation and relative performance standpoint, um, growth uh, versus value, value has a tailwind for a, a while. Um, it Also, the fundamental factors that we talked about as drivers, because value doesn't just turn around on its own. And it doesn't turn around because it's cheaper. Value turns around because value stocks generate the best earnings growth. So as a, you know even if we're as a value manager, we're completely dependent on relative earnings growth. It's one of the the, the things that's not widely discussed by value managers is that we have our companies have to grow uh, more strongly than they're expected to and the market. So what you have is you have, as we talked about, the shift of fiscal policy and helping real economies, if, I mean, whether you like Trump's speech or not, Think about his focus. Is I want to create jobs. I want to grow the economy. I don't. It's not about bond markets. It's not about the wealth effect. This is not an academic exercise anymore, which we were in mostly an academic exercise because central bankers have become academics mostly. Now what we have is we're going to get fiscal spending, the end of austerity. We spent a lot of time talking about austerity and driving deficits down, and that's what Europe needed to do. That's over. Even the Germans are going to lighten up. And we think the Germans and French are going to begin to get along a little better. Um, so we have effectively a war on inequality, a war on deflation. Uh, and, and if you think about the narrative that had driven this period of underperformance, and there's always a compelling narrative because the experts take all the evidence. And when it's incredibly certain and obvious, they, they create a story. Remember the super cycle? Um, we had the great moderation the sum of the same people from the same institutions now give us secular stagnation. So as soon as we got secular stagnation, the new normal deflation forever, that's when things began to turn. So, that, so you have the ingredients of a value turn are always in the face of low expectation and pessimism. Everyone begins to adapt their behavior and say, well, no, we don't want to stagnate. We, we do want to grow. We're going to take action against that. Um, so we've got policy shift Fiscal policy, very pro-growth. Um, we've got the contrarian opportunity caused by secular stagnation. And we do have rising inflation. You mentioned, that, mentioned that rising inflation around the world, rising in China, rising in Germany, picking up in the U.S., driven by wage growth, driven by input costs. China exports are rising in price for the first time in five or six years. So China isn't exporting deflation anymore. They're going to export inflation. Uh, you mentioned the Purchasing Managers Index Eighty-five percent of those around the world are in expansion. So it's not just the U.S. That's very broad. The broadest it ever gets is about 90. So there's – and and there's one – the one chart that I saw and and it struck me and the one fact um, was that we look at nominal GDP in U.S. dollar terms because we all live in a nominal world. Guessing what inflation is is hard. But at the end of the day, your paychecks nominal. Your sales are nominal. You spend nominal amounts of money. And the real part is, is important, but we all spend nominal amounts of money. So when – and in dollars, it's still the world's reserve currency, half of the trade is in dollars. Every – most people buy commodities around the world in dollar terms. So if you want to know how things feel, look at nominal GDP in dollars. And the downturn in nominal GDP, global GDP in US dollars in 2015 through the beginning of 2016 was worse than the 2009 downturn. And that's not widely recognized. I didn't realize it until I saw this chart. And so you look at you know, how horribly value did. Why did it do horribly? Why did it collapse through June of 2016 and dramatically underperform growth? Why, did it, why, would, why was all this pain enough to cause these massive changes in policy and, and the political environment? Well, the world had one of the sharpest downturns in nominal GDP and U.S. dollars in, in history, or at least in the last 20 years, um, and we're coming out of that now. It's growing now. So value will work because we value stocks have better earnings growth. We're in a growing economy. We're no longer deflating. Interest rates are rising. And these earnings estimates are rising. And if you look at what sectors are driving rising estimates, so global earnings have declined for six years in a row. They're well below trend. They've stopped declining and started to rise. That's another thing that value needs. Value needs a broad rise in earnings Otherwise, people just crowd into a few narrow growth stocks. And we know, of course, people also crowded into bond correlated and low vol stocks as a a bubble. Um, So cyclical sectors and financials are leading. You can't have a value recovery without cyclicals and financials. And their earnings are growing faster. They're supported by macroeconomics. They're supported by policy. Uh, We no longer are in a deflationary environment. And it and the central banks, are all they're talking about is overshooting, so it doesn't look like they're going to take the punch bowl away from the party until uh, there's a lot more partying for value managers at least.
0: Well, the one thing that global central banks have been afraid of this entire time frame is deflation, and to see <clears throat> China now exporting inflation or soon-to-be exporting inflation really does put a nail in the coffin for the global deflation story or that secular stagnation story. So can you uh, maybe talk a little bit more about how your active approach seeks to bridge the gap between implied growth rates and stock prices compared to forecast earnings growth?
1: Sure. Two things lead a stock to outperform. One is – and these are fairly straightforward. One is an attractive valuation, and the second is strong long-term earnings growth. And, and finding each of these separately is a fairly simple screen, uh, and, and we can find them. Finding them in the same stock is very rare. And our focus is, is really takes a little more discipline and discernment and, and patience to find companies that have no growth priced in but tremendous long-term growth potential. I think Warren Buffett said that markets are mostly efficient, and I, it's hard to disagree with that. So we're operating in that tail, that very active tail of 1% to 2% of all the stocks we look at around the world meet this cr- dual criteria, 1% to 2%. That's it so we're really in an an area a tale of unique characteristics of this very low implied growth not much growth priced into the current valuation and tremendous long-term growth potential and that's by the consensus you know we we the consensus analysts' long-term estimates are actually fairly good the analysts are fairly good at at disc identifying the quality companies with the best long-term growth potential they just get a little scared in the short term um, when things are uncertain, and, and we're trying to take advantage of that. So we're, we're looking for those great companies that at this moment don't price in any growth potential, and that's why we describe what we do as not selection but elimination, um, and elimination is, is you know, negative conjectures are more powerful than, than positive conjectures, not to get philosophical uh, and, and bring Taleb or Popper into it, but it's true. Um, we can identify a company that isn't priced to grow, And then we can eliminate the companies that have barriers to success and that don't have growth potential. And what we're left with is called the portfolio.
0: Now, I want to change gears here and look at a couple of different regions of the world. And I think one region that we've heard quite a bit about over the last 12 months and we're likely to hear quite a bit about over the course of 2017 is the United Kingdom and Europe and the changing political landscape that's going on there. The U.K. has yet to invoke Article 50, but that will be coming up here at the end of the the first quarter. Do you see any value opportunities in in either of those regions? And what do you expect to come out of a, a lot of these elections that are due to take place?
1: Well, we're being contrarian. We're a little more positive on Europe and a little worried about the U.K. And Europe has a massive risk premium priced in because of the unknown risks. Brexit is a somewhat known risk, and I think with the Supreme Court of the UK saying they have to go to Parliament, that they're going to have a Brexit, but it's going to take time, and it it might be sensible and might take a period. So some of the risk has been removed in the UK. The UK economy, the biggest threat is the 20% drop in the pound. So the consumer there is is facing increased costs. Um, Yes, if you're an exporter, um, that's great, but remember the UK has the biggest current account deficit in the world. They're not much of an exporter. They do export some services and do some services, but they're largely an island of, of financial services and overpriced real estate um, and some good pints and pubs and things like that but, uh, um, and, and uh, cheeses, but um, really n- don't benefit much. Um, so it, it remains uh, – there's some tough things coming out of the UK and some tough news about consumer purchases, Um, There was this panic right after Brexit where everyone thought, oh, they're going to go into a massive recession, and they didn't, of course, um, go into a massive recession because nothing changed right away. It was kind of silly listening to these academics say they're going to go into a recession, and it's like, well, nothing's changing for a couple years, so no. Um, But we are beginning to see um, some of the effects on, on, on consumer confidence and consumer spending, not a disaster, but definitely slowing down. So some of the things in the U.K. that look interesting are companies that, that are punished um, – uh, once again, punished unjustly. Um, being more optimistic about the markets um, uh, and particularly international markets, uh, the U.K. has a lot of great money managers from hedge funds. Everyone hates hedge funds now. and No one wants to use hedge funds again. Everyone wants to use uh, a passive ETF and some great money managers. So some of the money managers in the U.K., whether it's Man Group or Ashmore, Aberdeen, um, you know, those companies look pretty interesting. They also have some great luxury goods companies, and we'll talk about this in a second, I think. But the Chinese are coming back. The Chinese consumer never left but really is starting to come back in a big way. So there, there's companies like Jimmy Choo Shoes. Um, That looks very good in the UK. And then there's just some incredible valuations from the panic about the pound. So a company like Elegant Hotels, which is a Barbados hotel chain, trades in the UK, serves UK tourists, but they buy these packages in dollars. So the price went up and they're worried about it, but the stock fell to half the value of the hotels. So, I mean, you're buying this great chain in Barbados with fantastic hotels for half the price of the land. I mean it's a hotel chain. I mean you couldn't reproduce this company for two times what you're paying for it, but it's all because people are afraid that the British aren't going to travel. The thing about Britain though is it's a really cold nasty place a lot of times and the British still will go to Barbados because it's very nice and if it costs 20% more or 15% more they're still going to go and that stock will probably double or triple when they when the British return. So there's some opportunities from the dislocation and some legitimate concerns. Um, Some of the British banks look fine. Standard Chartered is more of an emerging market bank. Um, Europe, on the other hand, we do think that um, the likelihood that, let's say, um, populists are fine, but let's say the the more nationalistic kind of fascist right-wing side that scare people and should scare people in France and Italy and Germany, they're less likely to take power because it's a parliamentary system. So it's very hard to take power. You can sit there and scream in, in, in parliament for a long time with your 20 seats and never do anything. And no one will form a coalition with you. So we're probably going to have some local elections go, like in Italy, in Rome, and with the Five Star Movement, some local election, elections tilt. From a national standpoint, we may lose Angela Merkel, but like we saw in Austria, you tend to get a centrist, maybe center-right, center-left, someone new. So we see that in France, we're probably going to get a centrist, center-right, center-left, but a, but someone pragmatic, not Marine Le Pen. And when people go into voting booths, they're kind of some of these people do scare them um, a bit, and maybe a little more memory of World War II than we have here. And so some of their views scare them. And we actually see France, Germany, and Europe coming together a little more. I know that the the risk is of breakup, but that's what everyone's scared about. And we actually see the potential that Europe. Uh, identifies its problems. I mean, we kind of know what's wrong with the Eurozone. Everybody thought the Eurozone was great. Now everyone thinks it's horrible, but at least we know what's wrong with it, and they're likely to fix it with a banking union and more fiscal union, and the Germans will lighten up. Because the big, the big thing in Europe is the imbalance between Germany, which is doing really, really well with a massive surplus, and the rest, and we call it the beer drinkers versus the wine drinkers. So the beer drinkers have the surpluses and the strong economies, and the wine drinkers have the weak economies, and there is some rebalancing going on there. And so things in Europe that look interesting, you know, everything from big exporters like Hella makes, you know, makes the lights for your cars and autonomous driving equipment to big companies like Bayer, shipping companies look great on a cyclical basis, like Marisk and Norden, steel companies. Some of the companies make great pollution and water-related goods that the Chinese want, like Chimera. So better opportunities from a contrarian value standpoint in in Europe, but also some interesting high-quality compounders in the U.K. that are being ignored.
0: I think a lot of investors forget that Germany needs the European Union just as much as the European Union needs Germany. Yes, Half of Germany's economy comes from exporting, and their currency wouldn't be anywhere as low as it is if they were a standalone country.
1: Yeah, they're benefited immensely from the euro, largely because it keeps the Italians from devaluing. Historically, the Italians would just devalue the lira and stay competitive. And the Italians have suffered because they, they actually have to, to increase productivity and can't just devalue. And the Germans benefited immensely from, from that because the euro was weaker and the germans continued to to be um more and more productive
0: well hopefully the italians will be able to institute some labor reforms here over the next couple years to get them a a little bit more in line from a productivity standpoint versus the rest of europe moving over to japan japan has been a, a challenging equity environment for over 25 years but you are seeing some green shoots over there with a market that's relatively cheap and some higher growth numbers here recently uh are you seeing any opportunities in that country
1: yeah the, japan is i mean everybody says you know japan doesn't invent anything they invented secular stagnation i mean they they did it was invented in japan and it's hard to do uh, but they did it so well and they've really begun to break out of that because what happened was they decided that Japanese companies were destroying about $600 billion a year in value. And it's hard to have a robust economy when your corporate sector is destroying value. Seventy, 80% of the companies didn't pay any taxes because they weren't creating any value. They were just spending a lot of money. Um, I think the statistic once that shocked me was that Sony spent their entire um, market cap in SGNA every year. Wow. That's not a great way to grow your business or your economy or jobs or productivity. And I guess it was the third arrow of Abenomics um, was um, improvements in returns on capital. And uh, lots of skepticism towards this. Um, we, we were hopeful and and early on in looking at the improvement in ROE. But the Japanese companies have delivered a huge improvement in return on capital in ROE. Um, and ROE. Uh, and they've actually grown their earnings faster than the U.S. in the last three years. And, and they're actually – Japan currently – um, has the best earnings revisions in the world. So um, they're doing something right from an earnings standpoint. It's not just the yen. It's it's basically you know, sweating the assets. Half the companies um, in the topics index had, you know, net cash balance sheets. So they're beginning to to put balance sheets to work, divesting crusher share holdings. So we've had this powerful cyclical but as well as secular earnings improvement. And we think that the opportunity in Japan is that Stocks are priced like that's not going to continue. There's a lot of skepticism. So we have very low P.E. ratios, still low price to book ratios, decent dividends too. And remember, you can buy a company yielding 3% in an economy where the JGBs yield nothing. And and the central bank has said we're going to continue – to destroy the JDB as an investment alternative and force you into equities because the Japanese people don't like equities. They don't they – they're not in equities. They've been divesting equities for years. So they own almost no equities. Um, and, and so we think that Japan still has um, – is still going to continue to drive returns on capital higher because um, it's kind – of, once you make the – and this is very Japanese. and they, they kind of don't change and then they all change at the same time. Um, and so they're all changing at the same time and they're not turning around and it becomes shameful to be kicked out of the index that says you're a growing company with a high return on investment. Um, so the opportunity in Japan is not just to benefit from global growth and they do. If, you know, if nominal GDP keeps going up in dollar terms, they're a huge beneficiary of China growing, Europe growing, and the US growing. And because and they, they have global assets all over the world that earn a lot of money and so it's a pro-growth economy. Um, and we do think that it's undervalued. There's an underappreciated structural improvement in return on capital. So it really runs the gamut there. There's, there's companies that benefit from uh, the aging demographic. Remember, the aging demographic that's negative in Japan is actually positive because older people in Japan spend a lot more money than young people. It's a little different in Asia where – so you have self-sacrifice and you work hard and, and you save. And then when you get older, you start to spend like a teenager. In fact, the best predictor of what a, a, a man, an older retired man, will spend money on is what did he want to do when he was 18. So the number one product bought is an electric guitar. So there's a boom going on within Japan. So some of the retailers looked interesting, but, but there's also movement into new condominiums. So companies like Eda Group, half the company, I think half the companies have no successor. So small investment banking companies like Jafco or GCA look interesting. There's also global companies that benefit from China's move to efficiency and and abundance, um, particularly related to pollution, which is a horrible problem in China. So companies like Ibarro, companies like Hitachi, companies like Korea Water. Um, And then there's still the leader in a lot of secularly growing industries like battery technology. I mean, Tesla's partnership is with Panasonic. Um, so companies that make components for batteries like Ube or, or Xeon chemical uh, look very interesting as well. And of course, you know, we, we still have the, the great car makers that are a little bit under attack by Trump right now, but companies like Honda that look very attractive as well.
0: well and also, I think if you think of Japan and the fact that they have pulled back from uh, negative interest rate policies towards the yield curve control, you know, that's going to help weaken the yen, which in turn helps the underlying stock indexes over there
1: yeah it, it, the question is can they maintain control over the JGB's and and will that be tested because you know investors speculators like to test central bankers conviction
0: bond vigilantes
1: yes and well they've been bond zombies for so long someday they may be bond vigilantes but they're turning a little bit cranky aren't they and so um, I think that you know we've seen the yen rise um, and and um, some of that is because of Trump's tweets on the dollar. So it'll be interesting to see um, how they deliver on their clear intention to keep real interest rates on the long end very low and to force people out of those bonds. And I think they, they already own 50, 60 percent of the bonds, right? So the central bank is is taking that instrument away and clearly wants to maintain very, very liberal, and very easy monetary policies that should weaken the currency. If inflation starts to pick up, will the bond market begin to sense that and kind of circumvent what they want to do? We have a little bit of that going on now. So we're keeping a, we're keeping a close eye on it. It looks like you know everybody wants to debase their currencies. Um, the Chinese, in fact, are you know, the only people in the world that are acting to strengthen their currency. It's kind of weird that they'll be called a currency and a manipulator uh, because they're trying to manipulate their currency higher. So the Japanese yen um, might be stable on a global basis, at, but it but at a very cheap level, and, and that'll keep their companies competitive.
0: So one of the most hated asset classes, arguably over the last couple of years, has been emerging markets. And a, a lot of the negativity surrounding that area has been the strength in the U.S. dollar, with the dollar up over 20 percent since its mid-2014 lows. Are you finding opportunities there, and and do you have a view on the the currency and the impact it could potentially have?
1: You're right. The emerging markets have underperformed developed markets dramatically, and their currencies are back below 2009 levels. So for a dollar-based investor um, like we are, uh, you have the double benefit. Uh, even though it's been painful, you have the double benefit of very, very cheap currencies combined with very, very cheap and out of favor stocks. So yes, there's there's tremendous opportunities within emerging markets. Emerging markets have stopped underperforming um, and and there's still a lot of skepticisms that they can. Um, the fundamentals there uh, have have improved dramatically. Even in Brazil, the you know, Brazil, Brazilian market keeps going to new highs. Interest rates have started to fall there. Inflation has started to fall there. But even outside of Brazil, um, particularly in a place like China, which is everyone's favorite market to hate. I mean, every day there's five stories on Bloomberg with shorts talking their book and, you know, grew 9.9 percent nominally last quarter and retail sales grew 11 percent and it keeps not blowing up. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a largely a bunch of old Anglo-Saxon guys like me trying to figure out what's going on in an Asian country with a 5,000-year history. So we're, we're, it's very yin and yang. There are challenges in China, uh, and there are tremendous opportunities. Um, and if you look at the opportunity side, the new China, meaning the China that's actually employing more people and growing faster, the service sector, the consumer economy um, that's benefiting from rising incomes, I think there's 420 millennials. Even though they're annoying, it's a great— it's, it's 420 million. 420 million. Yeah, no, not 420. That, that, that's probably more than 420 in this office building. But there's 420 million millennials. It's massive in China. Uh, and they have the same upwardly mobile, aspirational, somewhat annoying habits that our millennials do. But that's huge. It's a huge source of growth. Uh, and, and they're continuing to spend money. So well, China's a great opportunity.
0: They're reaching their household formation years where <clears throat> you know, that's yes. typically where you, you spend the most of your income. You know, it's not, not hard to be a bull on China if you, you think about the fact that here in the U.S. we have 10 U.S. cities that have a million people. Right. In China, you have 160 cities that have a million people or more. So that demographic dividend is huge over there
1: and they and they're moving up in value added. One of the things they're doing is, you know, so they're focused on efficiency and abundance, not not necessarily focused on And so the quality of growth is more important than the quantity. We always worry about the quantity, but if you listen to what they're saying, even they they and we'll hear this in with the, in the party congress that it's the quality of growth they're talking about. They want to educate, they want more college educated people, they want to move up in value added. They want the next between now and 2050 to be kind of made in China and China prosperity in an era of restoration of the empire kind of thing. So they're very focused on the quality of, of growth and keeping their incomes rising. Um, and growth normally slows in Asia. As your income – you hit an income tipping point. As your incomes grow, your economy uh, slows down. Um, but the quality of growth, your return on capital, the profitability of your companies and, and the uh, per capita incomes rise dramatically dramatically. Um, so, you know, the China consumer plays that are extremely depressed are attractive to us from automotive to shoes. The casinos are coming back and, and Kotai and, and uh, uh, all of the gamblers are, are coming back. Uh, and, you know, the Chinese are traveling. I think they, I read they spent $300 billion last year in travel. I mean, people talk about, you know, the $10 billion of, of loan defaults here or problems there. These people have 45 percent of GDP in net savings. And they they can spend three hundred billion dollars on travel. Wow! You know I wouldn't worry about what is normal, which is there's always someone going bankrupt in an economy. And if you read what they're writing, there's a great book called The Logic of the Market. It's a great bestseller that was translated, and I read it. They understand that if you let the market forces guide resources, you're going to have some defaults. You're going to ha- you have to have some people fail. Um, so some of the failures are, are just are by design and they want to allocate resources away from malinvestment. And remember, the, the big part of deflation was this malconsumption being met by malinvestment. So the malinvestment in China as it ends, yes, it depresses growth, but it also removes a massive global deflationary force uh, from the world.
0: And I think as the new premier signs on for his next five-year term in November of this year, you could see a little bit of a purging of that, that access capacity that they have in their system right they now. They
1: seem committed to it. I mean, the, the, I always laugh that the, the, I'll read a bearish article on China that says there's not enough reform, um, and that's bad. And then I'll read an article that says there's too much reform, and that's going to depress growth, and that's bad. And, and it's just, once again, it's very yin and yang. There's, they're trying to have just enough reform to fix the problems in the past, but at a pace that doesn't destroy current economic growth, and, and it really is—if you—if you read the, the press releases from their central bank, they're—they're they're amazingly humble and honest, very Asian. Like we don't know what's going to work, and, and we're just going to do our best, and and we're going to react to things, um, and we're going to try and keep the economy growing, but we're not going to. But we're, we know we're going to have to cause some pain in, in some of the steel industry, and they're continuing to do that. The steel stocks are rallying everywhere around the world, the metal stocks, because they're shutting down excess capacity. And remember, there's this big thing. And getting out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it makes this a bigger thing called you know the New Silk Road or the One Belt, One Road. That's China's way of projecting itself into the region. And their region extends from China to Europe, by the way. The belt is, is basically a maritime belt, and the road is a road. And all the stands in between, as uh, along with Southeast Asia, they're setting up investment banks and they're setting up infrastructure projects, and they're projecting their investment outward to create this massive external growth. So as they shut, yes, okay, as so they shut down and slow down uh, housing and speculation in housing and, and malinvestment and stop building too many plants within China, they've got this incredible project. It, it's four or five times the size of the Marshall Plan going on, and they're funding it with banks. And, and as, as we turn away, rightly or wrongly, from the Trans-Pacific Partnership in that region, it's a great benefit to China geopolitically as well as economically. Um, and there's companies that we can we can buy in China that, that take advantage of that kind of external infrastructure spending.
0: So no, that's all the time we have for today, Paul. Thank you very much for your comments and your outlook. Great to be here. Thank you to everybody for listening to the podcast. Please note past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of January 24th, 2017, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced may have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. And if you found this helpful, please follow ClearBridge on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. And if you wanna learn more or have any questions, please visit our website at clearbridge.com. Thank you.